Welcome to the Registrar Roundup for the week commencing Monday the 18th of May, bringing you all the latest regulatory news and views from your top trade repository team. This week we're doing something slightly different on the show. There's a lot going on. Registrar has a major rollout of updates to our SFTR platform this week. There's been a lot going on Brexit news too. Finally, some Brexit news. Uh, but this week we have a special interview with Mark Jem. Now if you work in anything to do with uh, regulatory reporting, with risk, with compliance, with governance, with the ECB, with T. T2S, you will know Mark. Mark's an industry-leading figure in the international risk management community. He's chair of the Clearstream Risk Committee. He represents Luxembourg on the board of SWIFT. He led the T2S implementation for Clearstream. He represented Clearstream Bank on the ECB T2S Governance Board. He was chairman of the Luxembourg Central Securities Depository, vice chair of the European CSD Association. And basically, you name it, he's done it as far as risk, compliance, and regulatory oversight is concerned. And he's just joined the board of Registr. So, this week, we're going to spend some time in conversation with Mark. But first, uh, this is a financial services podcast, and anything could happen in the next 15 minutes. So here's our disclaimer, this time set to some mellow indie rock. This podcast is sponsored by Registr and features members of the Registr team offering their personal opinions. It is not intended to be taken as any form of legal, tax or other professional advice and there is no representation made as to the accuracy or completeness of the information within it, nor does it necessarily reflect the opinions of Registr as an organisation. Now, as I said earlier, this is a big week for Registr's SFTR platform. And just to give you a little heads up on the new features that are coming up and what we'll be discussing in greater depth on our next roundup, here's Head of Client Services, Barbara Ruiz Alonso. Hello, everyone. This week, we're having an important deployment into the SFTR UAT environment. It is the one before the last one, and it includes one of the more desired functionalities for our clients, the web searches. Web searches are crucial no matter how big the volumes of our clients are. It is useful for ensuring the reporting is correct and for getting statistics about rejection and reconciliation rates, which is the best way of measuring how successful the market participant will be with its reporting obligation. This version also includes a high number of bug fixes and some required adjustments to the validation rules. With it, our system is almost ready so we can freeze it several weeks ahead of the reporting start date. This will give our clients comfort and stability for testing in a static environment and get ready for production. Last but not least, I want to keep encouraging our clients to keep testing as much as possible to ensure all potential scenarios they will face in production are covered. I know how hard this is, so keep it up. Have a nice week and stay safe. And before we get going with Mark, there's just time for a quick Brexit roundup with John Kerner, who's uh, uh, Head of Product for Europe and Acting Chief Operations Officer of the UK, so a man with a foot in both camps. And actually, this is quite good because his summary of the news really sets up my first question to Mark. Good morning, it's John Kernan here with the weekly Brexit update. Actually, it's the second one I've recorded um, thanks to our wonderful regulatory operations team in Brussels who sent through a fresh update over the weekend, so let's get on with it. On the 15th of May, the third round of EU-UK future negotiations ended without significant progress as both sides refused to compromise on key areas such as the level playing field, but also on access to fisheries and the role of the European Court of Justice. 
Only one more round of talks remain, starting the 1st of June, before both sides hold a high-level conference to take stock of progress in the negotiations. By the end of June, they must also decide whether they want to extend the Brexit transition. Meanwhile, Joachim Lang, head of the main German business lobby group BDI, claimed that progress towards the future relationship deal was completely inadequate and stressed that failure of an agreement by the end of this year would turn an already difficult economic situation into a catastrophic one. On the 14th of May, the EU Commission launched an infringement procedure against the UK for failure to comply with the EU law on the free movement of EU citizens. A statement by the EU Commission outlines that the UK legislation restricts the scope of beneficiaries of EU free movement in the UK and prevents EU citizens from appealing against administrative decisions restricting free movement rights. In response, Cabinet Secretary Michael Gove wrote a letter to the EU Commission President Maros Shevkovich expressing his concern about the EU's treatment of UK citizens living in the EU and warned that the EU was at serious risk of breaching the commitments it made in the withdrawal agreement to protect the rights of British citizens living in the EU. Yeah, that was a difficult update for me to deliver the last bit there. You may have heard it catching in my throat a little bit. And I guess, you know, I come and give these Brexit updates in very kind of mechanical, clinical, legal, dispassionate terms. And it's easy to forget that, of course, there's, you know, there is a human impact um, underlying all of this. And I'm thinking of my, you know, my friends and colleagues and myself, admittedly, who are UK citizens, have chosen to live in the European Union and work in the European Union. Union. And then conversely, of course, I've lots of friends and colleagues who are EU citizens happily living and working in the UK. Frankly, none of us really has a solid clue of what's going to happen. And I think, you know, regardless of what your political affiliation might be, it'd be hard not to have some sympathy with the view that, you know, it must be frustrating and worrying to be so very close to the cliff edge and feel that you're still being used as a pawn in the negotiation process. So, if any of this actually makes it past the editorial team and doesn't end up on the uh, cutting room floor, uh, then I apologise for going a little bit Ben Elton on you there. Um, I'll get off my soapbox and, you know, wish you all a good week, stay safe, and I'm sure you're waiting with bated breath for the next instalment of Brexit coming your way next week on the Roundup. Take care. Thank you. And on that front, I want to dive straight in and uh, not give him a chance to even sip his coffee and say, Mark, um, we are facing two months down the line. SFTR is coming in. The Financial Conduct Authority has just launched the GRID initiative to help people prepare for changing legislation after Brexit. This is an unprecedented time, uh, especially with COVID affecting trading regulations and the regulatory landscape. This is an unprecedented time for uh, risk management to take and compliance taking a central role in the life of the financial services industry. Um, so what's your take on it? Have, have you ever been through anything like this before? Well... It's unprecedented, as you say, and we could never have imagined just a few months ago how radically our lives would have been transformed. But when I take a step back, in some ways, we have been through it before. And I think the two crises, which which I always come back to, um, where 
to some extent, COVID-19, you know, reminds me. Uh, the first is 9-11. You know, I, I'm old enough to have sort of been there uh, in the, the crisis management process uh, around 9-11, uh, already at Clearstream. And I think the, the key learning point uh, with 9-11 with was never believe that you know what kind of crisis you're going to get. Uh, because before 9-11, you know, people's contingency plans were tons of big lever arch files that said things like, if there's a fire in stairwell A, go down stairwell B. And after 9-11, we, we tore all those up because we said, well, nobody could have foreseen this. So you really need to put the emphasis on command and response. You need to be able to respond flexibly. You need to be able to adapt. And above all, that means putting decision makers together in real time with the people who have the information. We've been discussing in previous episodes questions around the need to refit uh, regulation and to keep it rolling and moving so that it remains relevant. And there is a question about EMEA uh, post-refit. Will it still be that sort of early warning system that it was originally designed to be? Is the changing global situation, the fallout of the lockdown and the, the challenges of restarting economic activity and global trade, is that going to mean that, again, there's been a, a, a missed category in terms of the, the regulatory environment and the risks that we face globally in terms of financial stability? Well, potentially, yes. I think, you know, the, the response to the last crisis is never historically going to help you, particularly through the next one. I think many of the things that were dealt with in, in Dodd-Frank, in EMEA, were aimed at rectifying things that had failed before. I mean, certainly the whole question of rehypothecation and the difficulty of knowing where the exposures and the sensitivity of which market actors were, and therefore you know, judging whether the financial system as a whole from any particular country or payment area were, were, were sufficient, that's something which was not exactly unknown before the crisis, and the crisis accelerated the, the need to address that. When it comes to the current crisis, it's very difficult to see exactly what the direction of travel is. For example, in the World Economic Forum surveys last year and this year, the, the two standout risks were climate risk and uh, fragmentation, geopolitical fragmentation. And the fear in particular that the two would feed against each other, that there would be potentially a failure in the global governance mechanisms necessary to address and to, to buffer climate change. Um, as a result of populism, as a result of majoritarianism uh, that is, is emerging. Uh, what's, I, I think, really fascinating about COVID-19 is how it has accelerated both tendencies. It's clearly shown 
in, in a great many ways, some of the mechanisms that would be necessary to address climate change and, sh and shown perhaps some of the costs which society and economy might be prepared or at least able to absorb in order to address those challenges. But on the other hand, it has also accelerated majoritarianism, it has accelerated populism, and it is certainly accelerated to a degree which is frankly rather concerning. Um, geopolitical tensions, notably, uh, you know, Sino-US relations. And, and where that leads us is, is, is anyone's guess. So from a regulatory point of view, it, it's hard to see how you can regulate for international relations when dominant policy policies are you're committed to dismantling those governance structures and i think it's a particular challenge for for my generation in the sense that we yes we come from a world that was a great deal more fragmented than the one we now occupy and particularly institutions like my own clearstream others euroclear swift you know, these were organizations formed at the height of the Cold War, but ultimately aimed at facilitating global capital movements and the distribution of resources you know, on, a, on, on a global rather than merely local scale. That's that in many ways explains is, is, is the sort of historic backdrop to, to our existence. And the world was then much, much more fragmented than it is today. But uh, we have grown up in a world where the, the basic principles of global governments have not been challenged. You know, we called it in the late 80s the end of history when, you know, the, 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 the mixed capitalist model clearly knocked the Soviet model into touch. Um, but what we're not so good at doing is engaging reverse gear. <laughs> And it seems in many ways that reverse gear may have been engaged. And uh, we, 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 we should not underestimate the, the costs and the challenges that the failure of that global governance model will mean for us. In particular, uh, given that COVID-19 has exacerbated or, or rather perhaps accelerated by compressing into a much shorter time period what would otherwise have, uh, have have likely occurred over a longer period. So think the issues that we might have confronted in the 2024 presidential elections, we will now confront in the run-up to the 2020 presidential election. So in a sense, we've been catapulted five years into the future. Now, from listening to John's report earlier, um, we, we know that uh, things are becoming increasingly difficult in the EU-UK Brexit negotiations, uh, not least because the, the COVID situation is sort of running the clock down on negotiations, but also that the, the climate seems to be difficult and there's a risk, a real risk of a sort of cliff-edge no-deal Brexit which actually has been predicted uh, by a few sort of senior commentators in the EU over the last few years and in the financial services sector. So we've got that on one side. On the other side, it looks increasingly like there's going to be um, talking of the, the US and the issues that are being faced in the upcoming presidential election, uh, that there could well be a, a, a sort of China-US trade war of some description 
that emerges over the straining relationships there, especially as uh, the US attempts to restart uh, its sort of global economic activity, and China does the same. So we've got Brexit on one side, we have a, a China-US trade war looming potentially on the other. Um, what's the upside to this situation? How, how does financial services play a, a role, and how does the security sector play a role? in trying to get economies moving and not becoming the meat in a whole array of rather unpalatable political sandwiches? There there are good sides and bad sides. I think, obviously, the resilience agenda. None of us would have dared experiment with, you know, the digitization of our working practices to the extent that we, we were forced under pressure of circumstances to do in early March. In reality, we've shown that the whole industry can operate, in a sense, as a virtual network. Um, you know, we, we, we effectively went through, or are still living to a large extent, a period in which the industry globally has worked essentially entirely from home. And uh, you know, many of those working practices will be retained. We had to review under pressure of time a tremendous number of procedures, predominantly those involving uh, waiting signatures. And many of those processes, many of those procedures, whether they are just internal administration procedures right through to things like securities instruments and so on, the, they, they, they will not come back in the way that we knew them in February. Um, and we've also learned that we can operate as a global community, even deprived of open borders and free travel to which we've we've grown, or free movement, I should say, to which we've been grown accustomed. On the other hand, the, the danger, I think, for the for financial services, for the banks and infrastructures, is that there will be potentially a strong temptation in any trade war, particularly if that trade war becomes, and I was thinking when you were speaking, Andrew, that trade war would be good if it's just a trade war. (laughs) Um, And what I mean by that is... There's open speculation at the moment that the U.S. might be tempted to instrumentalize financial services in its battle with China. I think it would be hubris to claim that one could see all of the circumstances, but clearly it would be extraordinarily challenging and unlikely to end well in the sense that most you know, most of the financial services industry have seen opportunity in China, but one of the good uh, outcomes of COVID-19 was to see, you know, that, that China's return to productivity in the, you know, in the second quarter was was one of the more encouraging signs. And, and now we, we, we see that we need to be very circumspect about that. We need to see how this plays out. Um, but for the banks, then I do think that one of the risks that we need to be very cautious about is 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 indeed the extent to which we're instrumentalized and the degree to which any recovery from 
this crisis is 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 limited by trade action. Now, sadly, that is all the time we've got for this special edition of the Registry Hour Roundup. Mark uh, Jem, who's the chair of the Risk Committee at Clearstream Banks, recently joined the board of Registry Hour and has held basically all the really cool positions uh, in the EU relating to custody banking and regulation. Uh, I'd just like to say a huge thank you from us at the Roundup. Thank you, Mark Jem. Well, thank you for having me and uh, good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> thank you. Okay, so that's it. Join us on our next episode of The Roundup, where Barbara Ruiz Alonso, who's head of client services, is going to be telling us all about some big SFTR platform news that's coming out this week. And in the meantime, have a safe week, have a good week, and do join us on uh, line. We're on LinkedIn at LinkedIn slash company slash regis hyphen TR. And join us there and uh, leave your comments on the podcast. And uh, also, if you've got any questions or you want to suggest any topics, get in touch and let us know and we will in the meantime hope you have a safe week and see you next time great wow mark thank you so much i know you're a very busy man but we'd love to have you back on